Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi there, this is Stop and Search, episode 4. It's a tricky one. So here we go. Behind your barricade. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricade. Where true values seldom stray. Thanks so much for joining us again. Right, this one is going to be quite a difficult one. This is on the Philippines. And if you're listening in the Philippines, please don't think this is a Western arrogance, which I'm very conscious of it coming across that way. This is a genuine concern, and we hope that we can have a conversation with you, because I know we do get listeners from the Philippines. So, Hi. So today we've got Marie from the... IDPC, which stands for the International Drug Policy Consortium, and Marie is the Senior Research and Communications Officer. Also joining us will be the regular Neil Woods, who you probably know from previous podcasts. He's the Elite UK Chairman, former undercover detective, and his memoir is out at the moment, Good Cop, Bad War. But also we've got Sanyo Tree, who is a fellow at the Institute of Policy Studies out in Washington. Now, I've edited in some of Sanyo's comments because, like Scribius Pitt, who are under on the Distraction Pieces Network, I'm a bit of a snob when it comes to recording off of Skype. I'm trying to work it out to get good quality. I'm not there yet, so we've done it a different way, and I hope that you like the results. So this is it. This is the Distraction Pieces Network. Under Scribius Pip, brought to you by Acast. Let's talk about the Philippines. Stop and search, episode four. Oh, interviewed me. <laughs> Getting some name drops in there. How's that sound then, Nick? He's a, yeah? I, I, I can't do that same introduction again now, can I? So like, it's going to be like three times. <laughs> anyway, all right, so we're at Releases Offices uh, with IDPC, who are the International Drug Policy Consortium, who are fantastic. I think you'll agree, Neil. Oh, absolutely. Neil's on my left here, is the chairman of Elite UK. And we're joined, uh, joined by Marie. Which I can't thank you enough because it was going to happen. We had to address something on the podcast which was going to be really quite tricky. And it's now. You can't really get much more of a hitting subject than this. And the person whose last name we're going to speak about, we didn't know how to pronounce. So if you can give us his name. Duterte. Duterte. uh, Rodrigo Duterte, who was voted in the president of the Philippines. 
What's happened since then? So basically, uh, he was voted in as president. Uh, the elections took place in early May, and then he came to power on the 30th of June. And even before he was uh, instigated as president, he started launching a war on drugs and a war against crime. Um, so he's been calling on uh, law enforcement apparatus from the government, but also on people from the general public to start killing people on site if they thought they would be involved in anything related to illicit drugs. Um, so since then, there's, there have been around almost 2,000 people killed in three months, which is, which is really devastating. Um, half a million people have also reported, surrounded themselves to the police um, for fear of their lives, really. So many of them are drug users or there are low-level drug dealers, but they prefer to surrender themselves to the police instead of being killed on site in the street. So if we're going to paint a picture of this, this is, this is a proper dystopian movie moment, isn't it, where we've got this insidious martial law, which is just literally a massacre now. Uh, how did we even get to that point? Is it just, is it a regional issue, the fact that, you know, as a Western civilization, we think that, you know, we know how crime and punishment works and those people over there in the far reaches of the, of the world don't necessarily have our, you know, and I'm obviously being completely trite here, but our sense of perspective, or is it just that, is it an environmental factor is what I'm basically trying to say? It's difficult to know. I mean, when you look at the global trends in drug policy, you do see a massive global shift uh, away from a war on drugs approach and towards a more uh, pragmatic, progressive, human-centered, um, health-centered approach to drug control. Uh, we've seen this internationally. There was an UNGAS that I can talk about uh, later, yeah, if you want. So yeah. it's a United Nations General Assembly special session on drugs uh, that took place in April. And there we saw that many governments actually promoted um, less uh, punitive approaches towards drugs. Um, so it's really devastating to see that the Philippines is going the other way. Um, on the other hand, we also see that a few other governments are doing the same. So you see Indonesia, which is also start well, it started uh, implementing the death penalty against drug traffickers um, since you know about a year and a half now, um, which is devastating because Indonesia had stopped doing so and they started again in early 2015. Um, so, so you see now a, a moment in the drug policy movement where you have. Uh, much more progressive member states and others, few, but still very prominent, that are moving towards a more repressive approach towards drugs. Do you reckon that's the inevitable conclusion of what the war on drugs is? I mean, Neil being an undercover detective, it, it's polarisation. You know, we're going to get the extremes of one sense we are getting progressive drug policy reforms and harm reduction speak, but then on the other, this is the benchmark of what's going on in not just a punitive policy, but in a, in a lit, literal human rights violation. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I do wonder, and, and perhaps you could offer an opinion in a, in a minute, is, is this actually a response to the growth in a more liberal approach across the world? Because if, if a government is faced with reforms going on and, and viewing the, thing, the, the way that things are going on overseas, is, is this a reaction, um, you know, a reaction in the opposite direction? Is it in response to these kind of policy developments I, I wonder but in answer but to, to ask answer your question uh, Jason in terms of policing from my point of view is that when when you try and police drugs uh, w you it will not only always fail it's not just futile is that if you police drugs you are always going to strengthen organized crime you're always going to strengthen 
um, the people who control the illicit supply. So policing drugs in every country, but I see it in this country. It only makes the organised crime group stronger. And the end result of that, the sort of dystopian future that you can you could potentially reach, is that the police just become the biggest gang. And, and so that is perhaps the eventual logical conclusion of the war on drugs is that it's just who's got the biggest gang and who's, who uses what tactics. And is this the, that playing out, I wonder? What's really scary about the Philippines right now is that it's not only, you know, Duterte is not only promoting a war on drugs approach within the law enforcement apparatus, the official one. It's, he's actually telling people in the streets, take a gun and kill people. Um, I had a few quotes here which I thought I would, I would read out to you because it kind of shows the messaging that he, that he gives people. So the first one is, I quote, if you know any addicts, go ahead and kill them yourselves as getting their parents to do so would be too painful. The second one, and um, so just to give some background for the second one, so Duterte, before he went into the presidential campaign, he was a mayor for the city of Davao. Um, within that city, he did the same kind of uh, war on crime approach. So he put together a vigilante and they started killing people. And he is known as the hardcore person who eradicated all crime in the city of Davao. Right? So in that context, he declared, how do you think I did it? Kill them all. And then under his presidency, he actually said that fish would grow fat on the bodies of the 100,000 criminals he would kill within that war on drugs approach. Yeah, so you can see that the way he's taking the problem is very paternalistic. And also, you know, he's using his, uh, his key messaging to say, kill them all, kill them all. We will eradicate crime. We all know it doesn't work. I mean, LEAP is the living example of an organization that says, we've had enough of a war on drugs approach, we've had enough of a tough prohibition, we've had enough of a policing approach towards drugs. We know it doesn't work. The drug war as it's being waged under President Duterte for the past two months or so is basically a national tantrum against drugs, a, a tantrum of Donald Trumpian proportions, where he is clearly not thinking with his brain, and that's just an appendage, as Stephen Colbert would joke, but rather thinking with the gut. Um, and it's a visceral solution, um, and the voters are, are frustrated, understandably, uh, and they want what they consider common sense solutions. If drugs are bad, why not have a war on drugs, right? If the country's on fire with drugs, then you should throw water under that fire, water being a metaphor for policing and, and, and militarized responses. That's just common sense, right? Well, if you've ever experienced a, a grease fire in your kitchen or an electrical fire, the last thing you want to do is throw water onto that fire um, because it'll explode. And many of the most intractable problems our societies face today have solutions that are basically counterintuitive in nature, which, means to, which basically means that uh, the, the, the obvious solution is the wrong solution. The knee-jerk solution tends to make the problem worse. And we have no better example than the war on drugs and, and the policies of prohibition, that the tighter you clamp down, the more valuable the drugs become as long as the demand remains, uh, and that just incentivizes more people to get into the drug economy. So you, you'll never make these substances disappear by making them astronomically more valuable, which is what drug prohibition does. It basically turns uh, minimally processed agricultural and chemical commodities uh, that are basically worthless in, the, in their natural state into things that are priceless and worth killing and fighting over uh, because of 
drug prohibition. That, that is to say, the, the, the drug war basically acts as an unintended price support for drug traffickers. By increasing the risk premium for these traffickers, we, we vastly increase the amount of money they're able to charge the next person down the, the smuggling or selling chain. Furthermore, by calling it a war on drugs, um, we're declaring war against um, a, a very unconventional enemy. I used to be a military and diplomatic historian, right? And one thing I learned is that wars are about employing brute force to extract a, a capitulation or a, a sur or organized surrender from a rational state actor. That is to say, country A uses its military against country B to get it to do what it wants. Well, we're waging a war on drugs. Uh, and the drug economy is made up of, of millions of individuals around the world, whether you're talking about uh, users or money launderers or traffickers or producers or uh, law enforcement. Uh, you know, all these different individuals are involved in this process. And individually, they think they'll largely get away with it. Uh, most people do. And so by declaring a war on this problem, we will never get a coherent uh, capitulation, an organized surrender from all of these individual actors. There is no uh, international grand conspiracy. There's no high command of the international drug trade that says, uh, finally, you know, we've had enough, we're licked, all you users stop using, growers stop growing, launder money launderers stop what you're doing, traffickers stop what you're doing, everyone give up and surrender now. That will never happen uh, because they're individual actors. There is no coordinated, um, organized surrender at the end of this day. And uh, what we're doing, essentially, is waging a forever war against an enemy Enemy who is quite literally incapable of an organized surrender. I mean, some of the other quotes he's had as well, because I, mean, I looked it up yesterday, and stop worrying about the bones of criminals piling up. This is what he said, apparently, when he, when the UN threatened to... Well, they haven't really been doing much, have they? which is what we're going to talk about in a minute, Ungas. They've been fairly toothless, would you say, the UN? So the UN is an interesting thing. So IDPC started engaging in this issue by reaching out to the UN. The UN, up until early August, had been completely silent on what was going on in the Philippines. What we did as IDPC and in collaboration with a lot of partners from all over the world, NGO partners, was to write a letter to the United Nations Drug Control Agencies. So that includes the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, UNODC, and the International Narcotics Control Board, the INCB. Uh, so in the letter, which was signed by 370 organizations, uh, we called on the UNODC and the INCB to take action, to take a stance against what was going on in the Philippines and to condemn the killings and to call on Duterte to you know, review his approach on drugs, um, to tell him that this is not an effective way of controlling illicit drugs. Um, we were very pleased because within 24 hours, both UN agencies reacted and they did release statements which were probably the strongest that we've received so far from both organizations. Um, but these came very late. They came three months after the killings had started and it was only because NGOs called on the UN that they actually took action. Um, since then, the two special rapporteurs of the UN have also taken a stance on the Philippines. Uh, so it's the special rapporteur on the right to health and the special rapporteur on extrajudicial killings. Uh, they've made extremely strong statements as well on, uh, on the Philippines. So uh, they've actually called for the decriminalization of people who use drugs, for a health-based approach, for an end to impunity about what was going on in the Philippines, and also you know, bringing people to justice and protecting people from killings. Um, Duterte has responded saying, 
we don't care about the UN. If you keep doing this, we, we threaten to get out of the United Nations. So that's what they came up with as a response uh, this weekend. How likely is that? Do you think they will? Uh, it, is, is it even possible? Actually, today they retracted saying it was a joke. Right, so that's, that's <laughs> a joke. Yeah, we, we can kill all these innocent people, but leaving the UN's a joke. It's, I mean, what do we know about him as, as a person, the president? As you said, you know, he's got a background in, in vigilante justice anyway. What was his background before that? Where, where did he, what's his origins? I mean, he has been, uh, you know, uh, he was the longest standing mayor in the history of the Philippines. So I mean, his Twenty approval years. rating is popular, isn't it? He's oh. extremely popular. He was elected by a landslide. Uh, I checked out the numbers, and apparently he was elected with six million more votes than the next candidate. And currently his approval rating is supposedly at 91%. And can we believe that? Is that actually true? Or is it that could state be. propaganda? It, no, it, it could be. I mean, we've got some, uh, some information now about people who are starting to go against him. Uh, so I can talk about this later, but we do know that he benefits from from a lot of support for his policies, and that's what's scary. You look at the comments that people leave on Facebook, on social media, and you see that a lot of people are actually in agreement with what he's doing because they see it as a step towards addressing the issues that they are facing. You know, a lot of poverty, a lot of people are under the poverty, poverty line, sorry, in the Philippines, crime, um, lack of access to healthcare, to social services, all that stuff, they, I think they do believe that he might be able to sort that out. President Duterte ran on a platform of all-out war on drugs, and when he took office, he gave you know, basically permission for uh, civil society to go out and actually kill people they suspect of being drug offenders. Uh, he's promised them that he would you know, absolve them and pardon them. Um, his national police commander has told people to go out and pour gasoline onto the homes of, of drug offenders. Um, so it's, a, it's an open free-for-all. And of the 2,000 people or so who were killed in the first two months of this drug war, 40% of these people were killed by the police. That is to say, the police had uh, filed reports where they admitted killing these people either in shootouts or in more suspicious circumstances. But nonetheless, those are accounted for by police. Um, the other 60% have been uh, unconfirmed in terms of, of cause. So uh, they're attributed to vigilantes that the president has given a green light to. Uh, but we also don't know how many of those murders uh, were done by, uh, you know, rival drug gangs seeking uh, to use this as a, a license to kill, basically, and to knock off their rivals, to expand their market share. Um, and uh, we also don't know, you know, how many of these killings are, are common crimes or uh, neighbors seeking revenge, settling old scores. Um, we learned, for instance, in, during the Cultural Revolution in China in the 1960s and, and early 70s, people were encouraged to denounce each other. Uh, for political crimes. But in fact, a lot of people were using that opportunity to denounce their neighbors uh, that they had other grievances for, whether they were you know, bullied in junior high or they coveted their house or wanted to sleep with their wife or whatever. Uh, they would denounce someone and off they would go to the collective farm for a decade or, or, or worse. Nonetheless, those vacuums will be filled, and whoever occupies that new turf is going to face competitors. And that's where the real violence comes in, um, when you have rival uh, drug groups seeking to expand market share and to control distribution in a particular area. They can't go to a judge and say, Your Honor, I've been dealing drugs in this neighborhood for 15 years, and this upstart gang took over my turf. Uh, you know, please go out there and kick, kick them out. Um, they can't use lawful remedies because it's illegal. Uh, and so the only way they can settle their disputes is by violence or threats of violence.
On a micro level, we see here in the United States, for instance, that crack cocaine is still very prevalent today, uh, but you never hear stories anymore about the, the crack wars and, and the shootouts that used to occur during the 1980s and 90s when the crack market was new. That's because the drug was new at the time, that turf lines hadn't been established, uh, and it, it hadn't been decided which gang would sell which drugs in which neighborhood. That's where you got all the violence. And I think a lot of the more experienced police departments know better than to upset uh, the existing dynamics unless you have a very good plan B. And in the Philippines, there is no plan B. Uh, they don't know what to do with all these people who are addicted. They're, they don't have uh, the, the treatment uh, availability uh, or the harm reduction programs to, to be, even begin to deal with all these people. That's interesting, isn't it? The environmental factors are straight away coming to play, haven't they? And I think you're so good at spotting what, what they're like and what they can do to people within those vulnerable groups. Well, yeah, um, I was just, I'll just pick up on one thing uh, you were saying about his, his, mayor, his term in mayor. I was reading in The Economist that actually his record as mayor with crime and poverty is actually appalling. He, he actually doesn't, he hasn't done a very good job. But the way that he talks about it, you know, the, the sort of violent rhetoric that he uses is what's made him a populist politician. So he's, it's literally myths and propaganda that he's creating. And it's, there's no evidence that he's had any success at all, which emphasises the fact that punitive measures of any kind do not impact on this topic. But, you know, I think it's just worth pointing out that he's actually telling us all lies. He hasn't had any success at all with these vigilante politics. He's just creating a reign of terror. Um, but sorry, what was your point? So straight away, when with environmental factors, with the fact that in the Philippines that there is a lot of poverty, there's a lot of um, you know we haven't got we've got healthcare in this country, probably not in a lot of different regions out in the in that sector. Environmental factors are so key to how a society perceives the enemy, the enemy at the gates. These people over here are all of a sudden taking up our precious resources. We've had trickles of that in this country. You know, we we think that benefit scroungers are the, the, the scourge of this and we think that drug users are the scourge and why we've got such little wells of wealth in this pool. We've, we're seeing this on such an escalated scale in the Philippines that poverty breeds contempt which breeds violence. Yes absolutely and, and um, those people who are most susceptible to getting into difficulties with drugs are generally those people who are using them to self-medicate in some way which of course is much more likely in, in in areas of, of poverty in this country and it's a simple truth across the world and so a, a place like the Philippines where they have such a, a genuine societal problem with poverty that that's it's literally a persecution of the poor because they are the light the people who are most likely to be to have these difficulties would you say that's true that the most people that are getting caught up in this web are the ones that haven't got a voice anyway they're the ones that are out there I mean there's been a lot of different demographics as well that are caught in the loop as well there are families that are now coming forward and saying that we're giving ourselves up because we we don't want to be persecuted by the state in a in a fatalistic way is there a danger that this is just going to cut across all of society and it's just going to create this turbulence and almost civil war unrest i mean absolutely and the issue of impunity is that anybody can be killed in the street whether they are part of the drugs trade or not you know, no one knows who these people are. There is no evidence, there is nothing that says that they are actually involved in any kind of drugs trade. And even so, they would need to go in front of the law. You know, there is the rule of law in the Philippines and it's devastating that the president is completely ignoring it. 
Um, in terms of the people who are being targeted, the president, I don't know if you saw, but they're actually also targeting people from the, his, his own government. So he's uh, released the names of about 150 people from government or ju the judiciary saying these people are involved in the drugs trade. Who knows? Maybe they're just political opponents he wants to get rid of. So this is just a get-out-of-jail-free card, ironically, just to anybody that opposes him and his stance. It's just getting chucked under the bus. Absolutely. And the people who are opposing his war on drugs are also being chucked under the bus. So this is something we need to consider. But going back to the people who are, you know, the most of the people who are being targeted by this, they're probably loads of marginalized people who, you know, live in situations of dire poverty. And as you touched upon as well, it's, it's, he's charged civilians with going and, and carrying out his duties, as well as some very strange alliances, like the, the New People's Army, which is basically a communist-led... Uh, how would you describe that? This is absolutely crazy, and this is going to have a long-term impact on the security and safety of the Philippines, you know? Like, this is what we can't stress enough, isn't it? It's not just a domestic issue to them. This is, this is a destabilising issue, isn't it? It's very destabilizing in, in a country where there's quite a few islands within the Philippines that are, you know, still where there's a lot of violence uh, and, uh, and like, internal wars, if you want. Um, and now he's actually arming people from the population. We all know the, the impact it's had in the United States, in Mexico, of the availability of weapons and the impact it can have on violence in the long term. That's what he's doing right now. And that's interesting, Mexico, the fact that they have had a literal drug war between cartels. We're now getting the, a literal drug war in the way that the, the state is persecuting their, their communities. Are we ever likely to grasp that in a Western state of just how bad things can get? On a macro level, we can look at, for instance, uh, Mexico as an example of what happens if you uh, do a similar policy. Um, you know, President Calderon, a decade ago, got elected with this mandate to wage a, a really bloody drug war. He's going to throw 50,000 federal troops at the problem and really show these drug traffickers who's boss. Um, he got his butt kicked and Mexico was, was decimated in the process. That is because uh, when you have an existing turf war that's just be sprouting as it was in 2005, um, President uh, Calderon uh, threw the Mexican military at this problem. They basically got into a middle of a, a very complicated turf war between over a half dozen different cartels. And as soon as they would hit one and weaken them, the other half dozen thought, oh, it's our turn to take over their turf. They're weak now. Uh, and there would be more violence. And then he would attack another cartel and weaken them again. And so this endless turf war became like a steamroller that you know rolled back and forth over civil society in Mexico and destroyed much of the social contract, which is going to take a long time, possibly a generation, to rebuild. And at the end of all this violence in Mexico, uh, one thing is certain. Drugs will continue to flow. Uh, they always have and always will. As long as there's demand in the United States, uh, it will cross that border. So after all this bloodshed uh, in Mexico, easily over 100,000 people have died in the process of this drug war. Um, nothing really has changed other than some of the turf lines. Some cartels are strong in one region and some are, have been pushed out of others. But the flow of drugs remains. So one has to ask, for what end did they kill over 100,000 people? Um, it, it really settled nothing and drugs are, are as prevalent as ever before. Well, I think it's a, a, a reasonable point to make that this is, you know, you, you call it a sort of dystopian effect of, of his, his policy and the, the war on drugs but 
I think it's worth bearing in mind this is there's a sort of inevitability to this that there is only one direction the war on drugs can can go because where whatever the country is whether it's a um a smugly stable democracy that we have or whether it's the, the example you use as Mexico if if you continue police and pursue um drugs in a punitive way it can only end one way it can only go in that direction it's a it's a war with no chance of de-escalation it's a constant arm race so however the police develop their tactics and try and catch organized crime groups there's always the pushback so this this cannot end very well in the philippines where he's declaring this this open warfare i mean one thing i've been trying to find actually in reading about this is any information about the organized crime groups or cartels which actually supply the philippines it doesn't seem to be any information that i've come across but they they, they are a player in this who whose hand will be shown at some point because there is no way that an organized crime group whoever it is manages the supply of these of, of various drugs in the philippines are just going to sit down and take this there's just no chance of that that there will be an inevitable pushback we may well not hear about it for a while because it's not something that um the government of the Philippines will be keen to report on or even admit to, I would imagine. But this is this is an issue that we should be keep an eye open for, I think. Have yeah, you heard anything about this? No, and that's a very interesting point because for now, I mean, I think that's been such a such a quick action that we're still trying to grasp what the impacts are going to be. And right now the impacts are killings, so it's like 2,000 people, um, a huge prison overcrowding. I mean, it's like 300% capacity already. So imagine with the... 500,000 people who have surrendered where are they going to put all these people um, so I think we've been focusing on this and we haven't really focused on the you know the bigger picture and how this is going to impact on the criminal organizations you've got a very fair point here and I'm I'd like to know what's going to happen about this absolutely but we all know that it cannot be good and that's important, the fact that there is, this is still playing out. This isn't just a, a boxed issue that we're having to deal with. This is ongoing, and it will be ongoing for quite a while. I mean, the, the head of police, what was his name, Mr De La Rossa, he's been on record as saying that, you know, some collateral damage is, is a byproduct of their success, and he's, he's celebrating the fact that they are getting somewhere. And what was the drug trade like before all this happened? Was there a significant problem? It wasn't significant, and you know the Philippines were were having some really interesting positions on drugs. I mean, when you look at what they said at the ONGAS, they were against the death penalty, something that Duterte is trying to put back. Um, they were in favor of a health-based approach, including treatment, but also some harm reduction interventions. Um, something that Duterte is clearly not in favor of anymore. He's just saying that people who use drugs are not worth saving and it's better to, better to kill them. This is what he said. Um, so, so, you know, they, they were moving towards an interesting policy position around drugs. And now we see that all of these years of preparation and advocacy have yielded no result because of one president who is now reversing all the stuff, the good stuff that's been going on so far. This is nothing new under the sun. Other countries have tried this, um, sometimes even more brutally, and it hasn't worked. If you look at uh, countries like uh, Iran or Saudi Arabia that uh, use the death penalty very frequently and liberally, they have to keep reapplying the death penalty because it hasn't solved the problem. It hasn't uh, gotten rid of the drug problem, uh, and it doesn't work as a deterrent. 
At a regional level, I would say uh, look to Thailand. You know, in 2003, under Prime Minister Shinawatra, the Thai government unleashed a bloody war on drugs. There were some 2,800 extrajudicial killings. Uh, at the end of all this bloodshed, the drugs are still there and they haven't won. And now they're thinking of actually calling off the drug war on drugs um, and, in fact, decriminalizing methamphetamines, placing it on the same list as other medical drugs uh, so that they can treat people who have a, problems with addiction uh, as, as patients in a health care system rather than in a criminal justice system. It's necessary to take this approach because uh, if people are criminalized, if they feel that they can be jailed or killed at any time, how many of them will will seek medical help or dare to be seen near a harm reduction facility? I mean, if there's one thing that, that death squads and vigilantes like to do is make lists of victims. And where better to spot people to kill uh, than at these facilities? So driving people underground uh, is not a good way of making sure that they get help. It prevents them from getting the help that they need. Another country I would recommend uh, they look at in the region is Australia, where uh, health experts are now calling for supervised drug consumption rooms for users of of meth and, and heroin. I visited the, the safe consumption room uh, in, in Sydney, and it was incredible. They're uh, coming close to their one millionth drug injection uh, there, and there have been zero overdose fatalities. Um, and in fact, people have been using methamphetamines in, the, in that supervised facility for quite some time without any uh, cases of, of violence or, or, uh, or death. So here in, in one region of the world, you have you know various countries taking drastically different approaches to the same problem of methamphetamine. Is it fair to say then this does boil down to one man's actions and opinions? Is it pretty much solely on his shoulders? Yeah, I think for now it is. No one would have thought that this was possible, but he has such a grasp on the population and because of his very populist policies, people follow him. And he's got a very, very important influence on people and and on the whole government. I mean, the structure is completely following him. So in what's important to know now is that in the government, there are a few people who are trying to counter him. So the vice president came out against the, the killings and two senators. Um, but they're a minority. They're a tiny minority. And so most there is people an opposition really, then? There is, a- there is a small opposition building up. So within the government, you also have the Philippines Commission on Human Rights, which is trying to to do an investigation into what is going on. Um, and the senator, uh, De uh, Lula, is also very much into trying to, uh, to stop the killings, and she has had threats from the president for doing so. So, and in, in terms of civil society, there are quite a few NGOs now trying to bring the issue to the table, talk about it with the population, and the church has also had a role. The church has a very important influence in the Philippines because people are highly religious are still in the Philippines. So it's important that the church has been doing that work in terms of telling people this is not right to kill people. It shouldn't continue. And we need to make sure that we work together to to protect people from being killed in the street. Right. Um, so there is some opposition but it is still a minority, unfortunately. And there's going to be a lot of work to do to make sure that people get out of this rhetoric of it's okay to kill people because they're engaged in the drug trade. That, that, for me, is a really interesting point, the fact that once you set up these paradigms, to, to be, use a cliche word, that all of a sudden 
that trickles down into the mindset of society. And all of a sudden, if they do think there's a success going on with lessening drug use through punitive measures, then that gets stuck in uh, mainstream thinking. Mm, yeah, exactly. And it's dangerous internationally as well, I think, because it's not clear that he's been telling lies. It's not been reported on very widely. I've only seen that in The Economist, where they've actually taken time to study his, actually study his record. So it's not clear in the in, in wherever it's reported generally in, online that that these are things he's saying are not true. So th- you know that that becomes part of the international conscious consciousness as well. You know because there are other hardline governments, aren't there? I mean, in terms of UNGAS, the the, the block. Uh, I'm sure you'll talk about perhaps UNGAS more in a bit. But the block of people who are still in favour of progressing punitive policies, for example, Russia. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't like to say suggest that maybe Russia is is close to this kind of sort of ruthlessness and chaos, but measures of success are dangerous, aren't they? If they, if they are misinterpreted by other governments, so this is it's a, it's a really I find this a really scary thing as an international issue, which is why it's interesting and worrying that we didn't know how to pronounce his name, which is the point you you were making to me earlier on, because we've we've read about this online, we've read about this in sort of minor online publications it's not massively reported is it and it's certainly not been reported on the television news and I, I i really do think this is this is worthy of headline news this is this is different and it's big and it's potentially devastating i mean there has been that for an issue like this it feels like it did have quite a lot of news uh, coverage in in written news um it was also featured in a Sky News uh, documentary last uh, week on Friday. I didn't, I didn't see that. So Friday evening, have a look at um, at uh, Sky News online because that was that was quite interesting. So IDPC was interviewed there, so we knew about it. But they also managed to send somebody from their crew there, and he was following a police officer who was trying to find people involved in the drugs trade. Oh wow! Um, so it's a it's quite an interesting way of considering the issue because he was on the ground and very few people are on the ground because it's so dangerous mm-hmm. and people you know we were trying we were, we were getting uh um people from the press trying to get interviews with filipino people and filipino people did not want to be interviewed because it was a health issue it was a safety issue they were like well sorry we don't want to put our lives into jeopardy it's mm. dangerous. It's dangerous for these people to come forward and actually talk exactly about what's going on in their lives and what's going on on the ground. So there are reports, but people are scared, and rightly and so. I can put the links up to, to anything like this if you go to a cast.com slash stop and search. Um, I can put the links up to what we've just been talking about as well so that we can actually see some of these news reports that are coming out. I'd like to see that Sky report. Definitely. That sounds, that sounds really interesting. Yeah. It sounds it's, a good way of covering it as well. So, so obviously I'm wrong. I've not been... I've not picked up on some stuff. And it's interesting as well because we've, we've just had a meeting and one of the points that we were discussing, um, not to do with this subject, completely different, but the fact that there are certain subjects that you just cannot get people on the ground on record for because there's just too much danger to them. And this is going to be the classic example of this. Why would you go on record when you've got your own government coming after you? So how do we get that information from those people at grassroots to our ears that need to hear it? The, the Human Rights Commission is trying to investigate some cases, so it, it's been difficult for them because a lot of people said no, even if you know their father, their brother, their sister has been killed, they don't want to talk about it. But they have been uh, in touch with some people who do want to have their cases investigated. 
Um, obviously, if an official investigation from uh, from the Commission starts, then it could also be interesting in terms of what they come up with, and maybe people will be more likely to talk to them. Um, and yeah, NGOs continue to play an active role in trying to raise the profile of the issue, and I think it's up to us international organizations as well to make sure that we bridge the, you know, the, the information, if you want, from what they report and what we can say on their behalf. It's a tricky balance, isn't it? Because as much as we really need to raise awareness to this, you also don't want to be accusational and, and try and get involved in, in foreign policy with our typical Western arrogance. So it's a very, very difficult balance, isn't it, to be able to do something about this? So something we've been trying to do, in addition to the letter, and you know, a lot of IDPC members and partners have been involved in that, was to try to reach out to our own governments to put diplomatic pressure on the Philippines. Um, so the United States came out recently around you know, uh, concerns around what was going on in the Philippines. So that's positive because the US uh, had pledged 32 million US dollars uh, to the Philippines for drug law enforcement strategies. So it's important that the US came out to say, well, we have concerns about what's going on in the Philippines. Beware. Yeah. Um, we, you know, I think we should just do this more and more. Make sure that we put pressure on our own government so that first they put pressure, diplomatic pressure on the Philippines, but also if they are giving funding to the Philippines, then they should make it contingent upon the Philippines changing their policy around drugs. Um, so we've also sent a letter to the European Union um, uh, last week, a couple of weeks back. Uh, the, the EU is one of the biggest donors of the Philippines. So for us, it's extremely important that they come out and saying, you know, this is unacceptable and it should stop. So I think as NGOs, we also have a role to reach out to our own government all over the world, not just Western countries, but Western countries, unfortunately, are the donors most likely. So, so this is something that we could do. And it's not imperialistic. It's just, you know, killing people in the street is unacceptable. And we shouldn't close a blind eye. It pretty much boils down to that, doesn't it? That we are just witnessing exterminations. And there's no getting away from the fact that it's that simple. Have we, have we had much in the way of luck from our own government in the UK? Have, have we done much yet? No, not yet. And I think this is something we should probably talk about and make sure that this is happening. Okay, what can we do? What can we do to put on the pressure, both from a general citizen in the US or the UK, because that's the two main listeners to this podcast, how can we make sure that we get some action from our own governments? Yeah, so there's, there's a few things that could be done, something that have been done already, maybe that could be replicated in the UK. So, for example, in the United States, um, this Saturday, I think, last Saturday, uh, people have been gathering in front of key landmark areas to protest and to raise the profile of the issue. I think it's still something we need to do in the UK, uh, make sure that people are aware of what is going on. Um, something else that has been done is write to the Philippines embassies in the UK, it's something we can easily do. Uh, the international network of people who use drugs and the Asian network of people who use drugs have um, a campaign online that uh, provides a letter that's ready-made and that we can send as citizens to the to the embassy in the Philippines to say, you know, this is unacceptable, you need to take action. Um, Amnesty International also has an action on that that could be interesting for people to, um, to engage in and then we can give you the, the links as well. Um, and also, if some of our NGO colleagues have uh, a link with the government, that can be, you know, the Home Office or the Foreign Affairs Office, write to them and call them to action. 
you know, do, do a bit of research as well in terms of what is the relationship between the Philippines and the UK and make sure you can use this background information by saying, you know, you have a long-standing relationship with the Philippines. You need to make sure you take a stance, a strong stance against this. The UK should not be complicit. Um, the UK has been complicit in funding you know, law enforcement interventions in Iran, for example. We all know that Iran is one of the biggest executors of drug offenders. This is unacceptable. So I think there's a lot of things we can do with the UK government to put pressure on them so that they can actually take a strong stance against what is going on in the Philippines, but also in a whole bunch of other countries that are extremely repressive towards drug users, drug traffickers and producers. We, we both felt ignorant, didn't we, Neil? We, we held our hands up. The fact that we couldn't even pronounce the last name showed that we really don't know enough about this issue to, to any degree to, to really do anything about it. And I think a lot of that is because we're so focused on our own domestic policy because we have got a punishment and a punitive system still that we just didn't really... It didn't hit our radar to any real degree. Other than when you started organising the letter, which, again, I'll put online... Uh, if you listen to acast.com slash stop and search, it'll be right there playing up right as we speak. That was the first time that it really impacted us. Oh, we, this is it. We need to do something about this now, don't we? Yeah, and it was, it was amazing to see, you know, we're in the middle of the holidays. It's July. And within four days, we managed to get 370 NGOs to sign on to the letter. So there is... There is a call within us that feels like we really need to do something. And I think we can really mobilize a lot of people around the issue and make sure that it doesn't go under the table and that doesn't get forgotten. That's what you said, wasn't it? This feels different. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, it does. It does feel different. It, it's it, Just when you think in the international war on drugs, you don't think there's somewhere else we can go. Uh, and, and yet there is. This, this, this really does feel different. It's state-sanctioned murder in the, in the name of the war on drugs. Where else can we go after this? This, this concerns me a great deal because um, you know the propaganda will be on their side. This is, so this concerns me a lot, I think. And we need to impress as well how this, this is without due process, isn't it? This is just literally going out there and doing it on assumption. There is, there is no criminal justice system that's acting upon any evidence or any calls. This is just literally, we're going for this. And before one can do uh, terrible things to, to fellow human beings, it is necessary to dehumanize them first. And I think we see this in, in, in play throughout the Philippines, the stereotypes of meth users uh, that people are, are responding uh, to me with on, on Twitter uh, are a classic illustration. You know, they say, oh, it'll shrink your brain to the size of an infant. Of course, we have to kill people to solve this scourge or, you know, we have to kill the guilty to protect the innocent. Um, I get these kinds of arguments uh, a lot, but I think it is a, a very good example of scapegoating. And if you go back to the biblical era, scapegoating was actually a literal thing. They would take all the sins of the village and uh, pin it on a goat, literally, uh, and drive the goat out of town. And thus, it, they would take their sins away with them, uh, with the goat. And I think today, uh, drugs serve as, the, as a convenient boogeyman. It's, it's uh, literally the goat uh, in scapegoating. It plays into this eliminationist mentality that says, you know, the world would be fine if we only, only got rid of uh, this group or that group. And we've seen how that's worked out in history, uh, you know, in, in, in so many different tragedies. This is the kind of uh, groundwork they need to lay in order to carry out a pogrom, which is what this essentially is. 
I rarely like to uh, quote, um, you know, text by academics, but but here's one quote. Uh, I think it is uh, it, it's too eloquent not to quote. Um, it's by Professor Craig Reinerman, uh, who used to teach at the University of California in Santa Cruz, sociologist. He uh, once said that, quote, drugs are richly functional scapegoats. They provide elites with fig leaves to place over the unsightly social ills that are endemic to the social system over which they preside. They provide the public with a restricted aperture of attribution in which only the chemical boogeyman or lone deviant come into view, and the social causes of a cornucopia of complex problems are out of the picture." Unquote. I suspect eventually uh, people will tire of these killings when they realize that it hasn't accomplished any of the goals um, that it was set out to do, and it's not going to erase the, the societal problems that underlie uh, the, the, the problems of, of drugs, which are mainly a symptom of an underlying problem. And I think many people will be disillusioned when they realize that many of these killings uh, may have been uh, drug gangs killing their competitors to expand their market share, or um, they could be from corrupt police uh, using the drug war, uh, uh, this license to kill, as a way of eliminating dealers and users that have been, they've been extorting money from uh, for, for quite some time. And they're afraid that these people might snitch on them, so they're killing them now while they have license to do that. So there are all kinds of other you know, motivations that could be at play here besides the, uh, the purported one uh, to, to deal with the drug problem. Absolutely. I mean, it's about due process. And also, I wanted to go back to something you said, Neil, at the beginning around how do we measure success? And mm. that was one of the biggest problems of international drug control. It still is. How do we measure success in our drug policies? So far, it's been measured into numbers of people arrested, people sent to prison, and crops eradicated. So in that sense, if you keep measuring success in drug control with these measures and indicators, then Duterte is doing great. So that should tell us about, you know, how do we measure success in our drug policies? And for me, it shouldn't be with measures of crops eradicated or people sent to prison or people killed in the street. It should be around how did we improve health? How many people managed to access harm reduction services? How many HIV infections did we, you know, prevent? How many overdose deaths did we prevent? Uh, how many people managed to get health and social programs instead of going to prison for micro-trafficking because they were vulnerable and had no other option? That's what we need to focus on. And I think the Philippines example really gives us an opportunity to rethink our drug policies and rethink what's important about them. What are we trying to achieve here? Yeah, absolutely. That, that is uh, one of the most important points that we should focus on all, all the time on drug policy. Another example of, of what you say in terms of how we measure things is, is the, the great con of, of, of our law enforcement of drugs. And uh, the best example of that is, is the big agencies like the National Crime Agency. So very recently, there has been a story in the news of the, the, the biggest cocaine seizure ever coming into the UK. And you know, it's the same old story from police and governments. They put out these photographs of, yeah, a lot of white powder. It looks very impressive. You'll have people stood next to it and posing with selfies with it. And yeah, it looks, all looks very, very impressive. And the National Crime Agency put out some statement that uh, they even had a Twitter quiz for this particular seizure, uh, asking people how many uh, several million lines of cocaine would this have been? And, and you know, how many several millions lines of cocaine less that has been snorted as a result of the seizure? Which, which is a ridiculous. It's a con. Because if you ask them, okay, what percentage of the overall supply in the UK is this seizure? 
let, if, if it's really such a big seizure, let's have the context. And as a police officer, as a, as a drugs expert, I was privy to the intelligence from, it was soccer at the time, not the NCA, that actually it's less than 1% is seized. So it's just a big con. Showing these shiny pictures and saying how well we've done, it's literally smoke and mirrors. It's a complete con. Because as you say, if we measure things in these ways, then just seizing more, more drugs, arresting more people, this isn't a success. It's, it's, it's a diversion. It's, it's the complete definition of dog whistle politics, isn't it? Because you're always going to get a crop that needs eradicating. You're always going to need... There's, there's always going to be a way that you can get that measure of success if you do base it on a punitive policy because it's self-fulfilling. And as you said, if we do look at this in a very different context of how many lives are we saving, how many, um, as you said, HIV, HIV rates are, are we reducing, that's, that's a, a long-term... It's not as quick fix, is it? You can't make as many headlines around that as in a, in a juicy, soundbite world. Uh, is it ever likely, based on what we've just said, that the regions like the Philippines would ever get back round to that now that they've had this this terrible policy that they've been instituting? When I step back and and look at the global view, however, and I uh, reflect on you know, my travels to, you know, drug production zones, meeting with peasant farmers who, who uh, produce a lot of these crops, um, or, or meet with communities where, where drug consumption uh, is the problem. I think the one thread uh, that, that connects these two sides of this equation is what I call the PDA problem, uh, by which I mean poverty, despair, and alienation. And the poverty one is easy to point to, everyone sees that problem. But I think uh, despair and alienation are also quite interesting because because they cut across class lines in, in very interesting ways. But if we fight those problems, I think you will alleviate a wide range of societal problems, um, not just drugs and, and addiction, but also delinquency, uh, insurgencies, uh, and, and common crime and that sort of thing. Ultimately, there is no substitute for building a healthy society. And we have to give people a reason to look forward to tomorrow. And that is something that many of us take for granted. Um, and for so many people in this world, uh, tomorrow is not going to be a better day. And if they believe that their best days are behind them, that the, the future offers them nothing better, um, then I think you can see, for, expect to see a lot of other societal problems uh, pop up, not just drug uh, abuse and addiction. Unfortunately, the Philippines has had a very high rate of wealth inequality for a very long time. And I fear that many Filipinos may be conflating the problems caused by drugs uh, with the problems caused by, by poverty and other societal uh, factors. Hopefully. I mean, we, you know, we've seen it in Mexico, for example. Mexico didn't used to be that violent. They didn't used to be that hard war on drugs type approach, right? And now they're... They're switching again. They're realizing that what they've done was nonsense. And it was Mexico that called for the ungas in the first place with Guatemala and Colombia. Three countries that have really borne the brunt of the war on drugs approach promoted by the US mainly. So, so obviously there is a hope for the Philippines. We're just hoping that it's going to be soon, sooner rather than later, because the consequences are dreadful. And it's going to continue if no one stops Duterte. And you, you do find that, don't you, that the producer com uh, countries are the ones that do have, again, literal war on drugs. You've got cartels pitched against cartels, which, again, Neil, you've got experience on a domestic level of what can happen with organised crime, that the way they 
are pitted against each other because of, of what the, the commodity is that they're fighting over, which is what a lot of your book is about, Good, war, uh, good Cop, Bad War. You've seen with your own eyes just what these laws can do to territorial battles. Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you use the UK as an example, where police do have successes, because yes, you see the newspaper stories and one particular organised crime group will be um, taken down, destroyed. For example, Colin Gunn's uh, organised crime group in Nottingham. It was, yeah, it was a great success. But the inevitable consequence of removing these these head figures is warfare afterwards. In fact, probably the best example of the moment that's going on is in Manchester. And only last year, the Greater Manchester Police actually said in one of their statements about the ongoing killings that's been going on in Manchester. Because week every week, there's, a, there's another shooting in Manchester. And they actually said this, I'm paraphrasing, but they actually said that this, this ongoing warfare is a direct result of police success. They actually claimed it as, as a consequence of their success in catching leading figures sort of heads of organized crime groups so it's the inevitable jostling for position that that happens after this it's still going on there's still warfare been going on paul massey a very high profile gangster in salford was killed as part of this ongoing war and you know he he, he is such a local figure there that he's he ran for mayor of salford and he didn't come last either he didn't lose his deposit he didn't come last such 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 a figure he was, but he he's been shot outside his house, and the war that that's from that is still going on. So, and that's in our smugly um, stable democracy, and this is going on all the time. So so, God knows what it's going to be like in the Philippines. But I I, I have a slight prediction, I think, because if you use Colombia, and you you, probably, you might have more knowledge of this than, than I do, but in sort of layman's terms, the way that I understand the history in Colombia, is that. The civil war was very much between government, who obviously had government money, and the rebels, the FARC, who were financed by the cartels, the organised crime groups, who were fighting against the government war on drugs, uh, policy and war on drugs. So what happened there, where there was a, a, a military, military response, a very heavy-handed response, was that the money, the drugs money, went to the rebel forces. And so literally, the response was civil war. So like policing in this country always makes gangsters more violent, in the Philippines, I wonder if that is going to be the eventual response because there's a lot of money in the pockets of the people who supply the drugs there. And what are they going to do with that money in response? Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. 
no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you think that is a danger? Do you think that there could be an escalation of what the uh, organized crime groups on the ground are going to do in the Philippines as a response to this? There's always a danger. There's always a danger. We all know that there are, you know, organized crime groups. We all know that there is trafficking um, and production, if there is consumption. Um, so, so yeah, we all know that they will fight for for their money, for their turf, and uh, yeah, it's just you know the prospect is very scary considering how much damage has been done already. Um, getting the organized crime groups involved as well is going to be devastating for the country. And there's going to be people that are going to be listening to this because we do manage to get people that aren't necessarily oriented to drug policy reform listening. We do have a good spread of listeners. And there will be the response, because you get it in the press all the time, that the blame goes on the Western consumers of drugs. How would we respond to that? What If there is a blame to be had, is it on the shoulders of people that go out and snort a line of cocaine at the weekend, which is what a lot of the press in this country specifically try and do? I think this is a very simplistic way of seeing it. Also because we all know now that the difference between producing countries, trafficking countries and consuming countries is completely blurred. So most countries are now producing, trading and consuming. Look at, you know, I don't know, like Colombia. They used to be mostly producing but there's also a lot of consumption now. So, you know, in the UK, there's a lot of cannabis production. So it's very difficult and to say, oh, the blame is here. The issue is not placing the blame. The issue is how do we minimize the harm of something that we know exists? For me, that's the real question. And that's what we really should try to address. What would be your response, Neil, if, if there was someone that came up to you in the street? Because I think we have had it we, at different events when someone says, well, no, just stop taking drugs then. What's the response? Well, I think the trouble is we have this collective delusion or there is this collective delusion in society that the drug laws that in this country began in 1971 actually do anything. And that because we've made something illegal, that's, that's, the, end, that's the end problem. And you get the classic... I mean, p- police officers are actually one of the worst... Peop- sometimes some of the worst people who will use the phrase... You know, you're causing that harm every time you you use those drugs. But, you know, we've been saying things like that for decades now and it's not done any good, has it? You know, the the evidence is there before us written in history in that ever since we brought prohibition, ever ever since we naively banned all these drugs thinking it would solve a problem, the problem has got significantly worse as a result. You know, when I started working undercover, I was paying £10 for a 0.2 bag of heroin and at the end of my undercover work I was paying £10 for a 0.2 bag of heroin and that's over the space of 14 years so it's defied um, inflation 
And especially when you consider that actually the average purity of that heroin over that period of time increased. So, you know, you just think about it, how much was a bottle of milk in 1993 when I started working <laughs> undercover? It, it's, you can say this until you're blue in the face. You can, say, you can point that accusatory finger at that person with that wrap of cocaine and say it's your fault. But the facts and the, you know, the reality of the prices of the drugs and the strength increasing, that's saying something different very loudly. And you, we can easily back that back as well, can't we? Because if the blame does lay at the doorstep of the drug consumer, then surely we can equally say, well, it's also under blame the international treaties that forbid regulatory models that can have production companies that fuel and distribute their products just in Afghanistan we can have heroin um, production we can have in Colombia we can have cocaine uh, coca uh, growing do you reckon we'll ever get to that point is there going to be a place in our in our lifetime hopefully um, it's, sorry it's actually funny that you mentioned the treaties because you know you're, you're talking about placing the blame on the on the consumers at the time of the treaties and when the treaties were put together the blame was placed on the producers Really? So if there is production, point. then there will be consumption. So it's quite interesting to that see how the debate on this has shifted yeah. in the past 60 years. Um, in terms of regulated markets, I think it's, it's happening on the ground. We all know it. We can't turn a blind eye. You know, it's, it's happening in Uruguay at national level. It's happening in five states in the US. It's going to continue with other referenda in November. Um, so we, you know, we, we can't not see it. Uh, so this is just for cannabis, but you also have coca that is legally regulated in Bolivia. I was going to say Bolivia You're, is an yeah, interesting example. Exactly, it? and yeah. it's very interesting the way they're managing the production and the consumption. You also have the new psychoactive substances scheme in, uh, in uh, New Zealand, so it's not really working properly, but the thought was there. Um, the problem at international level is that every single decision is taken by consensus. So that means that uh, progressive countries like Uruguay will have to come to an agreement with extremely regressive countries like China, like Russia, like the Philippines now. So that means that we're a long way away from finding a consensus internationally on regulated markets. But it's there, and I think it's the responsibility of countries internationally to start talking rationally about, about the issue recognizing that it's going on and having a real proper debate around what is going on on the ground and addressing the tensions that are now existing between the prohibitionist treaties and what is effectively happening on the ground. Is it likely to polarize even more? Because, I mean, we've mentioned UNGAS a few times. There was very much one camp versus another camp. There was a few in the middle that straddled both lanes, but there was harm reductionists and there was prohibitionists. Are we at this point, because we are getting to a pivotal point in the war on drugs in quotation marks, I think people are starting to realise that we need to have other schemes and other thoughts. Is it going to start polarising, do you think? Most probably, yes. So is there a danger that we can get even worse than the Philippines, that there will be, and, and Mexico and places like that, that we can have... And not that you can probably get worse than killing people in the street. Yeah, that, that's what I was the... about to say. Like, how can you get worse than this? Yeah, but um, a few weeks ago, we we would have said the same thing. Surely it can't get any worse. And then the Philippines happened. Yeah, this is why this is particularly worrying. And, and what worries me is that particular block that went to the UN who were in favour of more punitive measures. What evidence will they take from this? That's, that's, that's my real concern, I, I think. Do you think the UN... When they are they likely to wake up to this to do anything about it anytime soon to the degree that's needed to start saving lives? 
There is, there is definitely, I mean, it depends if you talk about the UN member states or if you talk about the UN agencies, right? So it's, there's a bit of a difference here. So for example, the, the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime and the INCB and the, the, the other UN agencies like the World Health Organization, UNAIDS, uh, UN Women, the UN Development Programme, all of these organizations are, have taken a very interesting approach in the lead up to the ANGAS. They've actually all come together saying, we kind of need a different approach here. We need to be less prohibitive. We need to make sure that we have a more pragmatic, evidence-based, health-based, human rights-based, development-based approach. That's kind of new. And the ANGAS has been really instrumental in putting all of that stuff together. For a very long time, the UN drugs agencies didn't want to deal with health, human rights, development. And then the development agencies or the human rights agencies didn't want to deal with drugs, right? So you're now in the moment where we can actually have a proper debate around this and have all the UN apparatus come together and have a dialogue around, you know, how can we integrate the drug component into our own mandate? All of them are doing that now. And I hope that, you know, that started with the ANGAS, but I hope that this will continue and we will really have a proper, proper debate around that issue because it's really instrumental, it's strategic. And the UN has such a power and such a, an important mandate to guide governments towards something that works, right? I'm really wondering why it took so long for it to happen. I mean, come on, the UN is from 1945. This mm -hmm. is 2016. There's really going to be a scale up that is necessary to make sure that the UN really does something useful on that. And they are on the right track. They need to continue. And this is where IDPC are brilliant for handling those very bureaucratical, very strange realms. I mean, if you if you it's like Starship Troopers, it's like that big old surrounding with, with grandeur and, you know, like the empire. And it, for us in Leap, we I think it's fair to say that we're very much angled at entry level and grassroots, aren't we? Of getting that grassroots changed so that it can trickle, trickle up. And I think the two are very much needed and are in tandem. I think in grassroots terms, we're getting there, aren't we? I think that the, the, there's a, a social shift in mindset that people are understanding that punitive policies do eventually end up at this stage that we're talking about now, don't they? Yeah, I think that there's a definite shift, I would say, in the last two or three years in in um, in the UK. Certainly we've found where, where we speak to people and the questions that we get, you know, we're, we're convincing people almost universally. You know, give, give, give us a chance to, to speak to people and, and you know, pe people will listen and people cha are changing their minds. But I think some of the best evidence for how domestic views are changing, it's... it's, it's it's only a sort of litmus test, a rough litmus test. But if ever you follow a a story where we've been quoted in the news, and, and that, happily that happens a fair amount at the moment, if you look at the comments uh, after newspaper articles online, whereas three years ago I would say they were almost universally antagonistic and unsympathetic to our views, I would say now over half, consistently over half of the comments are supportive. And... If anything is a good cross is a cross section of society, society, different demographics, then I would say they're probably a safe bet. You know, on online newspaper comments. That's a good transition to what I want to speak about now. To to finish off is to talk about support, don't punish. Because if you look at the polling, and again, this is just completely back of an envelope. But Professor Nutt did um did a poll a little while ago. I can't remember what report it was from. Again, I'll find a link to put it up. But he basically quizzed the 
public on what they thought of deterrent factors. So it's specific, uh, specifically on cannabis. Um, and he found that most people would prefer cannabis in class A, which translates to harder punishments. But then when pushed further, they didn't want people punished. They wanted a class C level of punishment, which means that people initially sign up and subscribe to the idea of punishment until they realise what it actually entails. And then if you compare that to what's going on with recent polls from like Transform that did a Mori poll on cannabis, that you find out around about 53% of people are now for decriminalisation. Support and don't punish, I think, completely encapsulates that. I think that we do get, an, and we use it on our branding, that we support don't punish kindly. Um, Jamie uh, Bridge, that couldn't be here today, that we're going we're gonna to carry on going down this theme of um, support and don't punish because I think it's so important. What goes on with that campaign? Can you just give us a bit of an explanation? Sure. So Support Don't Punish, it's a global advocacy campaign that we launched in 2013. And the objective really was to reclaim the messaging around drug control and to say, you know, the objective of, of drug control policies should really be to support people who need it, who need help, who need health services, social services, you know, any kind of stuff that they need, right? They shouldn't be punished. So we, at the beginning, it was very much focused on HIV. Um, so really focusing on people who use drugs, people who inject drugs in particular, uh, promoting a harm reduction approach, meaning providing uh, the services that people need to make sure that if they are not able or unwilling to, use, to stop using drugs, then they can access the services they need, for example, clean needles or methadone substitution treatment. Um, so that was the beginning of the campaign. And then when we kept going, we realized that support on punish encompasses so much more than people who inject drugs. It encompasses any kind of population that is targeted by drug law enforcement and repressive drug policies and who really should not be punished. That includes, for example, people who grow illicit crops uh, for subsistence purposes. If they, stop use, if they stop producing, they literally cannot survive. Is it really worth putting these people in prison, I wonder? Impoverished uh, peasant farmers take these risks to grow these illicit crops because they don't have other viable choices. Um, they, they grow these crops uh, as any other farmer would because it makes economic sense for their situation. They live, very often live in very remote areas that have been historically abandoned by the state. They have um, very little infrastructure uh, or, or even non-existent roads, um, no access to markets. And they grow illicit crops because it's relatively easy to transport um, and it's not perishable like fruits or vegetables. Uh, so you have people who are willing to, to very often pick up these illicit crops from you, take you, take it to the market and sell it for you. So you don't have to worry about uh, all the different problems that, that farmers have to face with, with uh, fruits and vegetables. Um, under Plan Colombia, for instance, uh, we asked farmers, we demanded that coca farmers stop growing coca and instead grow you know, thousands of kilos of fruits and vegetables to um, transport on vehicles they didn't have over roads that literally didn't exist to sell in markets, both uh, domestic and export, they couldn't get access to. And even if they could, they would have to compete against cheap agribusiness imports, very often subsidized by our tax dollars, against which these peasant farmers don't stand a chance. Uh, that's why these types of conventional alternative development programs done in the context of counter-narcotics haven't really worked very well. The campaign really expanded very much. And what we tried to do within the campaign was to do a global day of action every year. 
Um, so the global day on against drug use and drug trafficking is on the 26th of June. So it's a it's a United Nations specific day. It's the official day. And in the past, it's been used by governments to execute drug offenders or to launch just say no prevention campaigns that are harmful and stigmatizing. So we decided with Support on Punish to reclaim that day, reclaim the messaging, and instead of prohibition, let's use better drug policies. So we have had a huge success with the campaign, completely unprecedented, because you know none, none of us at IDPC were campaigners. So we kind of started slow saying, okay, let's have like five cities engage in a first play of action. We had 41 cities on the first day. And then last year we had 160 cities all over the world. And this year we had 125, which is a bit less, but we had so many countries and different countries engaging this year, you know? And it expanded so much in terms of scope and in terms of people involved. And so through, through the action, because it's such a global show of force, um, it enables people in their communities to uh, do sensitization campaigns with the population to explain why they're doing support and punish, why are they incorporating this, camp this messaging into their day daily actions, right? Uh, reach out to the media, try to change the, the messaging around the media. So for a long time, as you said, the media was really like, you know, war on drugs is great, you know, we've eradicated this, we've incarcerated so many people, we've seized so many drugs. Now it's more around, okay, this is happening, the global day of action is happening, this is support, don't punish, this is the key message, this is why we're doing this, we want to support people who use drugs, we want to stop incarcerating them, we want to stop uh, stigmatizing them, right? So we've managed to get this through the media a lot. And finally, it's been a way for affected groups and NGOs to start uh, a dialogue with our governments. So a lot of NGOs have used the Global Day of Action to organize a seminar, build a relationship with our government, start talking about drugs, start talking about better drug policies. And that's for me is what it's about. Is If you and again this link would be up if you go to support don't punish and have a little goes on it really is a celebration and as much as it's difficult to you know it's like that blitz spirit of something good can come out of something bad and that's what support don't punish is if you look at the pictures and you look at the faces that are supporting it it's such a beautiful movement it really is and, and for us i think that it's the most simplistic message isn't it of what you can do and if you support one thing support that one day a year that gets that point across. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, it is a positive message because we do need to be taking care of people. I mean, when, when I worked undercover, I used to manipulate people and take advantage of people who were vulnerable and needed help. And, but at the time, from the, my view at the time was that the end justified the means. So, you know, I was literally putting people at risk or making people's lives much less bearable. But for me, the end result was to catch uh, gangsters, which, you know, I was good at catching gangsters. In fact, I put people in prison for around a thousand years in total. But the, the most over 14 years that that did in terms of benefit for the war on drugs is that it interrupted the supply of the drugs that I was involved in, heroin and crack cocaine, for around 18 hours total for those whole 14 years. So if any statistic sort of brings home just how much of a waste of time it is, then that emphasises the fact that, you know, 
it, the end didn't justify the means because all of those people that I caused harm to, they needed help. And so that just emphasises the point, really. Support, don't punish, is, is, a, is, a, is a good way to go. There's always someone to plug the gap, isn't there? You take one person out of the market. And as, as you said, Marie, it's, it's really interesting. This isn't just about drug consumers. This is also about production. So there's a great film online, which, again, the link will be on, on the Acast website, um, Shoveling Water by Sonio Tree, which looks at what's going on in, I think it's Colombia, um, with the coca production. It's a few years old now, but it's still relevant. And he found that that's the easiest crop to grow. It's the most profitable. Um, and they, they, the regions that were growing it were normally impoverished reason, re, regions that relied on that income. And then if you try and push it off into something else, like I can't remember what the, uh, was, what the government substitution program was, um, it just wasn't profitable and they couldn't get it sustained. So it's about that propping up the environments as well, which... which we just don't necessarily have the conversation about. Meanwhile, governments forcibly eradicate these cash crops like coca or poppy, and it forces these families, and these are family farmers for the most part, um, into food insecurity. Uh, food insecurity is something that we take for granted in, in the developed world. You know, it's a question of what restaurant will we eat at tonight, not if we will eat tonight. But once their crops are destroyed uh, through a forced eradication, they have to come up with, uh, you know, some very um, basic uh, solutions to how are they going to feed their, their, their family? How are they going to feed their kids next week, next month, next year? And what is the one crop they know how to grow? for which there are ready and willing buyers that doesn't require a lot of infrastructure they don't have to help get, facilitate access to markets and that sort of thing. And that, of course, are the illicit crops. And so they go back to replanting. This is the vicious cycle that we've seen in Colombia, in Peru, uh, in Afghanistan, um, in Bolivia. They're actually starting to regulate coca. So they're actually uh, allowing people to grow coca a small amount for traditional use for tightly regulated markets, and that has given them some food security and some predictability. So these farmers, these cocoleros, are able to grow a plot of land about 40 meters square uh, from which they can get a small but predictable income. Once that they can do that, however, they can then take uh, economic risks and diversify. And so that's how you get people to wean off illicit crops and move to other crops because uh, people can now uh, diversify their, their economy. If they have some uh, skills at cooking, they might open a small restaurant. Or if they're good at uh, mechanics, they might open a, an auto repair shop uh, or, or you know some other uh, business or a small hotel or, or uh, whatever. Uh, but people will take risks if they believe that they have a predictable future uh, and they're not going to go hungry tomorrow. They, 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 if, they, if, on the other hand, they're in a perpetual state of fear that eradication might come and along with it their food security, they're not going to take those kinds of risks and they will never get off of the, of, of the cycle of growing uh, illicit crops. Something that's also been um, included in this year's Global Day of Action for the first time and that is also really important to remember is the problem of micro-trafficking. When we talk about traffickers, we always have this image of the big drug baron who's making thousands of dollars a day. Um, we've, we've been involved in a project with a number of partners in Latin America that looks into the incarceration of women for drug offenses in Latin America. And what we found is that in some countries it's about 60%, 80% of women incarcerated are there for micro-drug trafficking offenses. And most of them are single mothers, they have four or five kids who don't know where to go when their moms go to prison for like 15 years. 
And so what we've been trying to do was to develop guidelines and recommendations on how to reduce the number of these women going to prison because it has a devastating consequences for their lives because when they go out, they cannot find a job, something that they couldn't do in the first place, but now it's just impossible. Their kids are in a situation of vulnerability. Their whole families are at stake. The community, is, as a result, is completely destabilized. So I think when we talk about drug policy reform, we need to talk about all of those who might be vulnerable and who might be impacted upon by drug policies. And that also includes drug traffickers. A large majority of drug traffickers are in huge situations of vulnerability and they get engaged in the drug trafficking trade because they have no choice. So I think we need to remember these guys as well. There's a, again a great film called Cocaine Unwrapped that looks at that, about how disproportionately women are affected through the criminal justice systems in their regions. And it goes back to what we were saying, Neil, that there's always some disproportionate community that's going to be impacted on this, whether it be traffickers, as we said, micro-traffickers, let's get it correct, but also in, in our more grassroots UK-focused and even US-focused, the vulnerable groups are the people that are normally there because of some degree of trauma, whether it be a social trauma or their own mental trauma. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you just look at the homeless community in, in this country, they are completely exploited by the heroin organised crime groups. Um, I talk about in, talked about in the in the book where in Brighton, the, the literally homeless people were being forced. Really, they had no choice. They were being forced to be the sort of dealer buffer zone between the police and, and the gangsters, and they would be threatened with murder if they introduced anyone else to them. So they were proxy dealers, but they were being arrested and prosecuted as dealers. But they weren't dealers. They were manipulated and forced into that situation because because of their circumstances and all of the ones that i met and spoke to and got to know they were all vulnerable people who generally were using heroin to self-medicate for some kind of trauma in their lives so you, you can't get a much more vulnerable group really and you can't get them much more manipulated and terrified than that i don't think which is why support don't punish completely encapsulates that that message it's a perfect banner for a positive action of what comes out of what was the most insidious day of ever, which was celebrating punitive drug laws, essentially. But now we've got actually something that we can latch onto that people can get involved with. Because a lot of times, you may find as well that some people come forward and say, "Right, well, I subscribe to drug policy reform, but what can I do? And so I, I think support don't punish is a way that people can perhaps get involved. Absolutely. So you can definitely get involved in the Global Day of Action. Um, so you can get in touch with us. It's... Uh uh, campaign at idpc.net uh, but if you just want to be involved in your personal capacity you can also show your support to the campaign by taking a photo with the logo and sending it to us so it's uh, the, the it's all on the website you can have a look it's supportdontpunish.org um, and then you'll be part of 7,000, 8,000 supporters from all around the world who are already part of the campaign and show their support by sending their photos and it's uh, it's also celebrated by some public figures as well and I think uh, Sam and Richard Branson did uh, a T-shirt because you also got T-shirt branding as well, haven't you? Exactly. Yeah, we've got a few uh, a few people, uh, high-level people who uh, who engage. So people from the government, but we, you know, I think the campaign is also a way to link with every people who are impacted upon or affected. So you can have government officials, you can have NGOs, you can have people from the general public, and obviously we also have a lot of people from uh, affected communities, so subsistence farmers, people who use drugs, and for, for us it's important of course to have famous people to be part of the campaign, but I think it's also a way to raise the voice of affected groups and make sure that they are represented everywhere we do drug policy advocacy. 
absolutely. And uh, it's we've touched on this before, I think, on the Rufus Hound episode. Celebrity figures are unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, but they, they are needed because we raft out on their popularity and their Twitter followers and things like that. It's There's a use for it, isn't there? There's that public profiling. Yeah. Is, a, is a handy way of doing it. Absolutely. I mean, in, in 2015, last year, we managed to get uh, Kofi Annan to retweet the Support Don't Punish Day of Action stuff. And we got like 7 million followers, like, you know, for, for that tweet. And we're like, wow, this is great. It's true. We can't, you know, I think the the messaging around support on punish but also around drug policy reform is not necessarily democratized yet mm, yeah. to mm. a point where people would engage like this you know not really knowing what it is but okay i'll support it doesn't really go that way with drug policy reform because it's not obvious nothing about mm. drugs is obvious so so it's difficult to get support and getting people like russell brand or richard branson uh to support the campaign is super important because it shows that yes this is this is something we need to talk about this is something i need to understand and this is something they could potentially support as well. It's, it's difficult, isn't it? Because we, we find that with, if you're in drug policy reform, you're constantly on the scrounge for something because we have resources are tight and a lot of times we're just after publicity and exposure. And we found as well, we've had some really good public figures work. So for the fact that we're doing this on Scroobius Pip Distraction Pieces Network, it's given us such outreach, hasn't it? Yeah, it really has. It does, it does make the difference. And so... Anyone who is, could be remotely considered a celebrity who is listening, <laughs> nice please one. please get in contact with Leap UK. You can find us on our website, which is www.ukleap.org. Oh, nice. And also Support Don't Punish, give the website for that as well. www.supportdontpunish.org. And then if you want to learn more about IDPC, it's idpc.net. And IDPC are brilliant for that as well because what you do is that you're so good at collating everything that's going on with events. Um, so again, if you want to get involved in any kind of eventing, I mean, you put our events, the Livestock and Sturt shows up on site as well. So keep an eye on that because you really do distribute what's going on. Yeah, I mean, we've got a monthly newsletters for those who are interested. So we try to collate all of the news that are really really key to global drug policy basically so we send it every every month and it includes the latest news uh, latest publications and upcoming events so it's a good way to keep in touch with what is going on around the world and get an overview about all the stuff that's going on because there's so much information now you know too mm. much information kills information yeah that's so true yeah there's almost yeah. we've almost reached a saturation point without getting the the, the means the end that we need which is a good thing and a bad thing but this have one wrap-up summary of what can people do, what's the mindset that needs to change, just basically, you know, what's going on? Well, what needs to change is, I mean, really, we, as you said, we're the sort of entry-level um, outreach group at Leap UK because, obviously, we're law enforcement figures. So, and we work best, really. We, will, we like to discuss the international scene and emphasise that this is an international problem and that people should consider this. But... We're best on a domestic level, really. So what people can do to help us and what we really rely on is to organise a speaking event. You know, we, we like to speak in universities. In fact, we, we love to speak in universities, yes. particularly for criminology And a quick shout-out as well, because Essex University have reached out to us and we are doing one there. And I think that's going to be... It's possibly, and it's pencilled in at the moment with Anne-Marie, as a friend of ours, that 
hopefully will be on this podcast at some point. Oh, that's that's great if it's with um, Anne-Marie, Anne-Marie Coburn. Um, so, yes, if people can organise events, and I have to do the inevitable ask for funds as well because yeah. we do struggle for funds and we could do a lot if we had more. And you get but, something back, though. You do get a lovely gold shiny badge. Well, yes, that is true. And they are... <laughs> Really, really lovely. They are very shiny, very shiny indeed. <laughs> Sent over right from Leap in America, and uh, they're very sought after. Once seen, always, uh, always desired. I would say. Um, so yes, please send a donation, and we will send you a badge. <laughs> Look, we've done all of that great UN speech and everything like that, and now we're boiling it down to a blue piece of badge you get if you get involved. <laughs> it's all worth it. <laughs> and Marie, how a summary from you? Just what can people do to get involved? What can, should they keep an eye on this issue? Is it likely to get worse? Just what do you think? Yeah, do keep an eye on the issue, and we'll try to do our best to keep everybody informed on social media and on newsletter on any kind of way you can get engaged um, in, in the debate. We do have a blog on the Philippines, maybe we can link it on this podcast, where there is a link to all of the actions that are taking place so far and how you can engage, write a letter to the Philippines embassy, write a letter to your government, make sure that you keep disseminating information about this on social media, make sure you reach out to the media as well. Let's not leave the issue die about. It's, it's just too important and people keep being killed every day. We just can't let this happen. It's a very sobering thought to think that as we've been doing this podcast there could well have been a death because of this policy that we're talking about and just just again to boil it down to something trivial but what's your twitter handle at idpc <laughs> um well if you if you want to tweet around this i i'd suggest you actually use the the hashtag support don't punish uh but also so uh as uh the hash uh, sorry the handle, so for IDPC, it's IDPCnet, and for support on punch, it's SDP campaign. So you can use both of them. I always get confused when I'm trying to give them. There are just so many acronyms and things. Yeah, me too. I kind of got lost there. But maybe we can also put that on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, it'll be on acast.com slash stop and search. So I think that completely wraps it up. And I thank Nikki, the producer, again, that's sitting here in a, in a not too hot a room, which was expecting was expecting the sauna, but it's not actually too bad in here. It's so only you, 40 degrees. If you hear a fan noise, we needed that because we were <laughs> yeah, we <did>. persevering. <laughs> but thanks for tuning in. So there you go. That was a difficult one to do. It was a bit of a departure from our live podcast where we can inject a little bit of humour here and there. There wasn't too much call for having a bit of a laugh over that situation. So if you do want to get involved, all the links will be up on the Acast slash Stop and Search uh, rolling stream. Please do click on and see what you can do. And again, if you are listening to the Philippines, please don't think that we're accusing you of anything and trying to get involved in your domestic policy. This is generally concern from friends and hope that comes across. As you're listening to this, we're getting ready for our next live podcast, which will be at Tottenham Court Road, Waterstones in London, where we're talking about addicted to drug journalism, which is a bit of a pun, but, well, you've got to come up with something catchy for the Eventbrite links. If you want to find out the details of the next event, it'll be at ukleap.org. You'll be able to see it. It'll be pretty clear to find. Um, a few thank yous. Thank you to Scoobius Pitt that signed us up to the Destruction Pieces Network. Thank you to Nikki, the producer, who you're you're a wizard, quite frankly. I don't know how you do it. If you see the notes that I have to send Nicky to edit requests, he's like the Da Vinci Code unraveler and Dumbledore rolled into one. Um, my name is Ed. Thank you so much for the podcast artwork. Uh, 
please check out Susie Gage's amazing Say Why to Drugs podcast, which has just really taken off. And, and quite frankly, it's a tool. It's a harm reduction tool. Please get involved with that. Um, thank you, Drew, to Let Me Look TV for helping us out on all the promo and filming. And also, thank you, Johnny Borrell, as well, for the uh, for the song use of um, a very befitting um, sound to this this quite tricky situation which we discussed in this episode so hopefully we'll come back with something a little bit more light-hearted for stop and search episode five uh, it should be a good one so thanks a lot bye behind your barricades yeah but how long can i stay Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.